Well, I want to minister for a few minutes this morning through a message I'm calling The Mystery of God, namely Christ. Jesus alone is the one that distinguishes Christianity from every other religion in the world. Jesus alone. No other religion has a crucified Savior. No other religion has a resurrected Savior. No other religion can produce life but Christ. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 12, we find the truth that ratifies just exactly what I just said. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 12. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Friends, I don't know of a shorter yet more comprehensive scripture that captures and supports the magnitude of who and what we possess than that scripture right there. I mean, it just captures literally the essence of a relationship with God. What they're saying there is literally, it doesn't matter what tribe, what nation, what tongue you're from. He says, whoever. Jesus has not hidden himself from anybody today. There's not a person on the planet, I don't care how wicked, how vile you are, Jesus has not hidden himself from that person and cut himself off from that person. He says, whoever has, I love that word, has, it literally means possesses. Whoever possesses the son. Now notice it doesn't say a son, does it? No, it uses that word the, which is a definite article, which means the one and only. He said, whoever has the son, not a son, the son has life. And we know that life is Zoe, which means the God kind of life, the life that we live right now. This is the kind of life we have. We have God's life living in us, the hope of glory, right now. It's not just life in heaven in the by and by. We have life now. We have the Zoe kind of life. We have the God kind of life. Whoever has the Son, the Son has life. Now, you know what? He could have just stopped right there. He already made his point. The writer made his point. John made his point. But then he says the same thing a different way. He says, and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life, which is kind of really just saying the same thing. But he's really trying to drive home the point here so that you don't get off in your crazy doggy brain and go, well, I've got a son, so I've got life. No, it's not a son, it's the son. And whoever does not have, notice how he adds God in the second way he says it. Whoever does not have the son of God. Let me bring clarity to this. And notice that son is capitalized there, so he is pointing to someone very, very specific, not generic here. He's talking about the Son of God, and he said, whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. He says it a different way in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 23. John says, no one who denies, again, the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. See those four times it uses the word the? Whoever has the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father. Whoever does not acknowledge the Son does not have the Father. We know that Christ is the only way to God. The only way. 
What I want you to see through the message today are these truths. Jesus is the only way to the Father. He has been with the Father from the beginning. Under the old covenant, he was concealed. Under the new covenant, he is revealed. My wife loves to watch mysteries. Mystery movies, and that's probably a strong word if I say love. She just say, I like to watch them. She likes it a lot. Any other ladies out here like those mysteries? Yeah, see, every one of you ladies like those mysteries. It's a puzzle for her. It gives her brain something to do. It's like an exercise for her brain. And in each of the mystery movies she watches, the narrative is continually coursing its way, inch by inch, toward the revelation of the proverbial old whodunit, right? I mean, that's what it's working toward. And every once in a while, I'll walk through her TV watching space, and she might be three-quarters of the way through that movie, maybe halfway, whatever it may be. And then I'll ask the question, and I'll say, well, honey, have you figured out who the perpetrator is? And her answer almost invariably is no. And I think, wow, man, if as intuitive as Valerie is, I mean, the way she connects dots and I's and T's and everything else, and you don't know yet. I mean, I always find that quite amazing. Sometimes she does. Valerie has watched enough of these mystery movies to know that they are written in such a way that keeps you guessing to the very end. Have you ever noticed even the innocent look guilty? Does this sound familiar? It's like us sometimes. We know we're totally innocent in the Father. He's already declared. He said, I've justified you, which means I have declared you innocent. We know from the scriptures, we know emphatically that we're innocent, but yet sometimes we feel guilty. Shouldn't be so. I'll say, that guy, it's got to be him, right, honey? Especially if she's seen it before. I'll say, it's got to be this guy. She'll say, no, it's not him. And I'll watch it for a couple more minutes. Oh, no, it's her, isn't it? No, it's not her. So more times than not, she's not aware of who it is until the very end. She has to watch too there. But once the big reveal takes place, then everything makes sense. Now you're able to look back across the landscape of that movie, the timeline of that movie, the storyline of that movie, and it's littered with signposts. You're like, oh man, I see now. So having learned the outcome of one of these mystery movies, if you were to watch that same movie for a second time, it would be easy for you to see the overt clues that were present that you missed the first time through because you were busy working, trying to figure it out. But when you're really just resting, see, we learn more from God if we're just resting. When we're working, it's, man, it's just hard. But as we're resting in Him, we're like, oh, okay, I get this. Let me see if I can drive home what my point is here. Today, whether you know or not, doesn't feel like it, but it's Super Bowl Sunday. Today's Super Bowl Sunday. Now imagine I have a favorite team that's playing today. I don't, but imagine I do for a moment, but I've got a birthday party this afternoon, and that's true. I've got to be there. Imagine I can't watch that game, so I set my TV up to tape it, okay, to record it. And the game goes on, and the game finishes, but I don't know who won. 
I don't want to know. Don't tell me. I want to go watch it. Now imagine I watch that. I get home late at night and I start watching it. There's four quarters in football, 15 minutes each. Now imagine for the first quarter here, my team scores nothing, but the other team scores. Second quarter, my team scores nothing, but the other team scores. My team scores nothing in the third quarter, but the other team strengthens their lead. Now we've entered into the final quarter, friends. All hope is gone. It would take an absolute miracle for my team to come back. There are no statistics that state that a team ever has come back that far. But the wind starts to blow in their direction. The current of the wave turns and my team starts scoring over and over. And we get down to those last few seconds in the game. And there's one Hail Mary pass. And my receiver on my team catches it and runs across the goal line just as the clock is expiring. And we win. I mean, the first thing I would say is, what just happened? I mean, I would be happy. I would be jumping up and down. Now, imagine, I'm so happy that I go, I've got to watch that game again. So I go all the way back to the beginning. And I begin to watch that same game. I'm going to tell you what would be missing the second time around. All that disappointment in that first, second, and third quarter. I'll tell you what would be missing. All that frustration, all that nail-biting, all of that would be gone. Why? Because I already know the outcome. The mystery has been revealed. Friends, the mystery of God has been revealed also. His name is Jesus Christ. He is the resurrected Son of God. And in Him, like I said in earlier scripture, in Him is life. It may have looked like he was losing when the Romans whipped him at the whipping post. It may have looked like he had failed when he collapsed under the weight of carrying his cross. He may have looked powerless to stop his adversaries when they spit in his face, when they mocked him, when they dressed him with a purple robe, and when they put a spiked crown of thorns in his head. It may have had the appearance that the cross snuffed out his life once and for all and that the grave silenced his voice. But there was a fourth quarter! There was a fourth quarter. It's called the resurrection. It's what makes Christianity different from every other religion of the world. Now, for those who lived under an old covenant in the Old Testament age, they couldn't see Christ the way we see Christ. Like a hallmark mystery, the darling of heaven was hidden in plain sight. We know that because Jesus was there in the beginning of time. You and I have the ability to look back and we can see him in the scriptures. We can see him in the narratives. We can see him in the storyline. Looking back into the Old Testament with the lens of new covenant eyes, it reveals the Christ. Looking back into the Old Covenant, into the Old Testament with the new covenant eyes, it not only reveals the Christ, but it reveals the cross. Looking back into the Old Testament with the lens of new covenant eyes, we not only see the Christ and the cross, but we see the crucifixion. You say, in the Old Testament? Yes! Looking back, friends, into the Old Covenant with new covenant eyes, we not only see the Christ and the cross and the crucifixion, but we see the cross. The cry for man, 
We see that truth in Zechariah chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. Look at these words. And I will pour out upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. In that day there shall be great mourning in Jerusalem as the mourning of Hadad Rimon in the valley of Megiddon. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. Let's look at verse 10. It says, And I will pour upon the house. The house does not speak of four walls and a roof and shingles. The house speaks of family. I'm in the family of God. You're in the family of God. It says, I will pour upon the family of David. David means my beloved. <laughs> Do you see how you can take this up close and personal now? This is for me. And I will pour upon my family, my beloved, and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem just means the city of peace. Look what he says. The spirit of grace. I love that. The spirit of grace. It speaks of new covenant. I'm going to pour upon my family, my beloved, the spirit of grace and supplications, and they shall look upon me. That speaks of the Christ. Whom they have pierced. That speaks of the cross. That speaks of the crucifixion. And they shall mourn for him. That speaks of the cry. As one mourneth, now look at what it says, for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. Friends, hidden within the Old Testament prophecy of Scripture is the mystery of God. As you look at that Scripture right there, you see the mystery of God, namely Christ. Zechariah prophesied of an outpouring of the Spirit of grace. That's our covenant. We are under the covenant of grace. He spoke of a man that they would look upon, a man that they would pierce. That's our Jesus. He spoke of great mourning and bitterness of soul for an only son. He called him the firstborn. That's our Christ. Zechariah prophesied all of this would take place in Jerusalem, the city of peace. And it happened just exactly the way he said it would happen. Now, I have a question for you. Can you name another man? Can you name another man that's ever walked the earth that fits that prophetic criteria other than Jesus Christ? You can't do it, can you? That is Christ he's talking about. He doesn't even know exactly what he's writing. He doesn't know what this looks like. He's just writing as the Spirit gives utterance, and he's saying, this all doesn't make sense to me, but this is what I'm hearing you say, God. And believe me, the prophets in those days, they heard the Lord very well. Sometimes I think they hear better than we do, and we have Holy Spirit living on the inside of us. I think sometimes we just discount because we just go, oh, that's just me thinking that. No, that's the Holy Spirit. He sounds like you. As we fast forward into the New Testament, we meet an apostle by the name of John. He was the one who wrote the words, the disciple whom Jesus loved. When the Apostle John wrote about the crucified Christ, he wrote from an eyewitness, first-hand perspective. You see, John was the only one of the disciples, the only one of the twelve that was at the base of the cross when Jesus was crucified. 
when Jesus shed his innocent blood for all humanity. And when writing about the graphic details of the crucifixion, you know what John did? He reached all the way back into the book of Zechariah and with his precious metal detector, he revealed that which had been hidden, that which had been concealed in the earth for generations. It was Zechariah's prophecy concerning the mystery of God, namely Christ. Look what he said. John chapter 19, verse 37. John said, And again, another scripture saith, They shall look on him who they pierced. Do you hear what John said? John is referencing, he says, I'm telling you, there was another scripture that says what I'm about to say. I'm not going to take credit for this. He said, and again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierce. Friends, that is word perfect as to what Zechariah prophesied. Look at it again, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. He says, and now we'll pour out upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. Look at those words. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. Beautiful. In the book of Genesis, we find an archaic narrative with timeless truths. The story of Abraham and Isaac is like a hallmark mystery that takes an interesting twist as it reveals at the very end whose blood was actually shed. As that story begins, as you know, it looks like Isaac is going to lose his life that day, but it takes a twist later. We'll see that in just a moment. Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, look what he says, your only son. You hear the same language? He says, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I will show you. Now listen to me carefully. I want to be honest with you. I don't want to embellish anything I'm about to say. I've said this before and I've thought about it for many years. I haven't thought about it recently until I read this scripture again this morning. If Papa said to me, Mark, I want you to lay your life down for some poor old sinner that he might be saved and go to heaven. Because without your life, that man will be lost for an eternity. I would count it an honor and a privilege. I would count it an absolute honor and a privilege to lay my life down so that another man could go to heaven. But I have to be honest with you at the same time. If that same voice said to me, Mark, son, I want you to take a knife and I want you to plunge it in the beating heart of your son, Tyler. I would say, Daddy! I can't do that. I don't love anybody that much. And if you would be real, if you'd be honest, you'd say the same thing. And so when we see the magnitude of God's love for us, that he would allow his son to be crucified, mistreated as a masterpiece of an understatement, 
and we got to go, what love is this? You know, the Bible says while we were yet sinners, rotten sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. It says scarcely will a man die for the righteous. He didn't die for the right, died for the ungodly. I would just say, Daddy, I can't do that. So we see this. I don't know what's going on in Abraham's heart. Maybe there's a tug of war, but he knew God's voice. And when God said, you know, go to the land of Moriah and sacrifice your son, Abraham knew exactly what he meant. How do I know? Because he took all the stuff for the sacrifice, the wood, the knife, the fire, all that stuff you would use to sacrifice. He knew exactly what the father said. And I don't know what was going on inside of him. Maybe there was just a wrestling match going on left and right in his heart. <laughs> but he didn't waste any time. Very next morning, son, <laughs> we're on a journey. What love? I I'm trying to understand this love. I find it interesting that God told Abraham to take his only son because Isaac was not his only son. Remember, the first son was Ishmael. Then came Isaac. So when he said, take your son, your only son, he names him. He says, Isaac. Isaac is the younger one of the two. Considering the fact that Abraham, again, had two sons, but only Isaac was the son that was born of a promise. Ishmael was born of the flesh. This is the promised child. Just like Christ is our promised Savior. Take the promised one. Take him. When he says only son, it is the Hebrew word yachid. I love this word, yachid. Yachid means united, that is soul, by implication beloved. It means beloved. Yachid means beloved. The word only means, and it's in front of son, it means my beloved son, my only son, my beloved son. It means my darling. Look at that. It means my darling son. He said, take that son to the land of Moriah and sacrifice him there. Please remember that Yahid is the Hebrew word behind our English word only. And it was the word that the prophet Zechariah used when he said, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced and shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. The same exact word. Zechariah was pointing back to a very special moment in his own heart because he would have been very familiar with the Genesis narrative. And he was looking back to that example because that is the first time you see Yahid used in the Bible is Abraham and Isaac in that moment. Yahid, reading from right to left, are four Hebrew letters Yod, Chet, Yod, Dalet. Now, why is that important? Because this is the word behind darling. This is the word behind beloved. This is the word behind only. And he said, I want you to take that son, Yud, Chet, Yud, Dalet. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. They don't use the vowels like we do. 22 letters. Yud, which is the smallest of the Hebrew letters, there is no letter in the Hebrew alphabet that that stroke is not used. The yod is used in every single letter. It's the only letter that's used in, to make every other letter. 
So it encompasses everything. It's in everything. It's in everyone. The Hebrew letter chet means life. It means new beginning. So we see yod, everyone, life, yod, dalet, the Hebrew meaning for dalet is door. So what is so important about this is what it does to my heart, it literally sends the message that says everyone's life, everyone's new beginning comes through the door. Now, when we fast forward over into the New Testament, when Jesus said something himself that seemed so silly, when he said, I am the door. Did he say that? He said, I am the door. And even pointing us way back to see, I'm daddy's only begotten son. I'm daddy's darling. And if you want life, you've got to come through me. I am not a door. I am the door. John chapter 10, verse 9, he says, I am the door. Not a door. Again, definite article. I am the door by me. If any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus said, I am the door. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham. Then God said, take your son. Look at that. Your only son whom you love Isaac and go to the region of Moriah sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you early the next morning Abraham got up and loaded his donkey he took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering he set out for the place God had told him about on the third day Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance he said to his servants Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. It says Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. Friends, this is a picture of the cross. This is the father putting the wood on the back of his son. This is a symbol of... It's a type and shadow that we would say of actually the cross. The father putting the wood on his son's back. He placed it on his son Isaac. But watch this. It says, but he himself carried the fire. The father would carry the fires. They didn't have matches and lighters where they would just strike fires. They would carry fire, hot coals and fire with them. So they wouldn't have to try to make fire somewhere. So they would take the fire with them. What the fire symbolizes is a complete purging. You know what fire does when you have silver? It heats it to a point where the dross, all the impurities are separated from the silver. The dross floats and you just skim the dross off so that you have pure silver. What the fire speaks of, it speaks of a finished work. And I love what John the Baptist said. He said, I baptize you with water but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am unworthy to untie. And then he says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. They're not two separate things. The Holy Spirit is the fire. But remember, he's not coming until Jesus leaves. And the father carried the fire and he carried the knife. Now, friends, listen, a knife is just used to separate things. We separate fat from 
meat. We separate meat from the bone. That's what a knife is used for. So what we see a picture of here is it is a type and shadow of him literally separating our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. It's a picture of the sacrifice itself. And the father is carrying the fire. The father is carrying the knife. Daddy is prophesying about a cross on the back of his son. And through it, he's going to purge us of all of our sins and unrighteousness. He is going to baptize us with the sweet Holy Spirit and fire as he separates the wheat from the chaff, as he separates our sins as far as the east is from the west, not with a knife, but with Jesus's precious blood. Daddy is going to walk us through the door as we take one giant step for all mankind into Yahid, his only son, the firstborn among many brethren. Now, let me ask you a question. Does it warm your heart to watch a movie with a happy ending? Does it warm your heart? I think we all love happy endings. I do. It just warms our heart. Did you know that the worst day of your life cannot change the way a movie ends? In other words, you watch a movie and boy, it just puts you in tears one day and one day you're in tears about something else, but you sit down and watch that movie and guess what you find? It ended the same way it ended the first time. Whatever you're going through doesn't change the way anything ends and nothing will change the way we end in Christ. Nothing changes our position as sons and daughters of God. Continuing in this Genesis narrative, it says, and the two of them went on together. Isaac spoke up and said to his father, now, I'm trying to understand this. I don't even know what this looked like. I think Isaac is excited to be on an adventure with his daddy. I think when they left home, Abraham did share a lot of stuff with Isaac, right? <laughs> Some were going on a journey. And Isaac knew by what they were carrying, we're going to go sacrifice something to God. I think he was excited about that. He's a teenager. He knows what's going on. He's excited to be with his daddy. Father. And Abraham says, yes, my son. He said, the fire, which we would know as the Holy Spirit, and the wood, which we would know as the cross. He said, they're here. But where is, look at this, where is the lamb? Not where is a lamb, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb. I love that. In the Hebrew, it literally reads, God himself, the lamb. God himself is the lamb. God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Man, what a compliant son! I would just venture to say, I'm, I know my boy loves me, but man, if I started doing that to him, he just wouldn't go along with it. I mean, he'd pull some army kung fu on me or something. You know, he just... He wouldn't let me go along with that. I mean, what a compliant son. Can you see Christ who wants to do the will of his father? That's why he came. All he cares about is what's my daddy's heart. My daddy knows something and I don't know what's his will. And he lets his father 
tie him up on an altar. I mean, how weird of a picture is that? You get the rocks built up and you lay the wood on there and you get the fire out and stuff like And he's like, okay, son, go ahead and get up there. It's just a weird picture. Doesn't this show you how much love and how much trust there is between a father and a son. And that's all the father wants us to do. He, he wants us to trust him. He wants us to trust that we hear him first of all. We want to do his heart. We want to do his will. This is an amazing story. This is not a parable. This actually happened. And whether we get to see that someday, I mean, I would love to see that. I get to heaven like, Daddy, show me Abraham and Isaac. I, I'd love to see that. What love! He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham! Abraham! Do you see the exclamation point? That's the way it's in my Bible. Now Hebrew does not use punctuation marks like this, but they can tell by the way it was written this angel wasn't just, hey, Abraham, Abraham. No, the angel said, Abraham, Abraham. I love what Valerie said a few years ago when she was preaching about this story. Hey, yeah, how can I help you? I mean, that would have been me. I mean, because, I mean, I'm coming down with the knife and all of a sudden the angel says, my name, something interrupted me just for a moment. Yes, how can I help you? What can I do for you today? Abraham said, here I am. The angel says, do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son. Look at these words. Your only son. That word only is that same word, yachid. It means You've not withheld from me your beloved son. You have not withheld from me the darling. Your darling. You have not withheld him. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram. I love that part of the story. I do. I love that part. Abraham all of a sudden looked up and he saw a ram. You know what a ram is? A ram is a male sheep. I love how they did that. They just didn't say he saw a sheep. He saw some sort of goat. It specifically says he saw a ram. A female sheep is a ewe. A male sheep is a ram. And they call out his actual gender. This is a picture of Christ. He is caught in the thicket, the Bible says, by his horns. He is wearing the crown of thorns. Can you see the imagery? I mean, just when the father is about to kill his son, Isaac represents all humanity. For years I would read that and I would go, well, Isaac is a picture of Jesus and he is in a sense in certain parts of the, the Bible there in Genesis. But Isaac in this situation is a picture of all humanity, that the father was coming forth on humanity. But the ram was coming up the backside of the mountain. Jesus was walking up a hill and just was saying, Father, lay me on the altar. Lay me on the altar for them. Not them, Daddy. Me. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. Isn't that beautiful? 
So Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. In other words, he's saying it is a finished work. It has been provided. It will continuously be provided. Man, if you can't see Jesus in that, if you can't see the darling of heaven in that narrative, In Psalm 22, David writes about the mystery of God, namely Christ. Now see, we don't think about this, but yes, he is in the shadows of the Old Testament. In Psalm 22, verse 1, David says this. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does this sound familiar? Look at Psalm 22 sometimes. This is how David opens up his psalm. He says, my God. My God, why have you forsaken me? Well, let me ask you a question. Did Jesus utter those same words from the cross? Did he say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yes. He was not referring to his father actually forsaking him. What he was doing is he was pointing his audience. He was pointing those at the very base of the cross and those that they would tell. He was pointing them all the way back to Psalm 22 to say, look, I am the fulfillment of that prophecy. Because Jesus always called his daddy father. In fact, that's what got him crucified in front of the Pharisees. He would call him father and they hated that. No, he's not father, he's God. But Jesus, for the first time, says, my God, my God. And so it would draw their attentions back to a familiar passage that they would have known, which was in Psalm 22. And it could get them thinking about this psalm and what's in this psalm. The hallmark mystery has finally come to an end. Behold, the one that took the place of Isaac. Behold, the one that took the place of all humanity. Behold, the ram caught in the thicket. Behold, Yahid, the only begotten Son of God. Behold, Yud, Chet, Yud, Dalet, the one that gives life to everyone that comes through the door. Behold, the mystery of God, namely Christ. David continues that psalm. Psalm 22, after he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let's skip up to verses 14 through 20. He says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. And thou hast brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. Look at that. They pierced my hands and feet. Friends, he was writing something he knew nothing about. Crucifixion had not been developed yet. It would take hundreds of years into the future before the first crucifixions would take place. And here's a man saying, they pierced my hands and my feet. So when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And drew their attention back to Psalm 22, they could go and read, they could see the crucified Christ that Zechariah talked about, that was in the narrative of Abraham and Isaac. They pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me. Look what he says. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. Did that happen? Absolutely. That happened at Jesus' last walk. But be not thou far from me, O Lord. O my strength, haste thee to help me. Then look at this, what he says. 
deliver my soul from the sword, my darling. That word darling, behind that word darling is yachid, the one where it talks about the only son, the only begotten son, the only son of Abraham. Same exact word. He says, deliver my soul from the sword, my darling, from the power of the dog. It seems like it ends on a weird note, but the power from the dog, the word dog just means attack. And that's exactly what they did. They attacked Jesus, brutally attacked Jesus. He said, deliver my soul from the sword, my darling, my beloved, my little Yahid son from the power of the attack. Beautiful. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 15, we find these words. I want you to know how much I am struggling for you. Do you hear Paul's heart? He said, I am struggling for you. Remember that word. And for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not met me personally, my goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know, look at that, the mystery of God, namely Christ. Those are his words, and that is where the inspiration for this message came from, as I had been meditating in Colossians. And I said, are you kidding me? In order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Namely means explicitly. That's what it means. It not means just his name. Explicitly, Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, and how did we receive Christ Jesus as Lord? By grace, through faith. That's how we receive Christ Jesus as Lord. So he's saying, just as you receive Christ Jesus by Lord, or in the same way, he says, continue to live your lives in him. This is not a conditional statement for our eternal salvation. He's just saying the very same way you came into Christ, by grace through faith, he said, live your life that way. Live by grace through faith. Just live that way. Rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Friends, I'm telling you, thankfulness is a deliberate choice. We need to be thankful people. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. In other words, if anybody tries to add anything to the Yahid of God, the darling of God, the beloved of God for your salvation, it's philosophy is what it is. And he says, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. And there he says, which depends on human tradition or the things that man does, the things that man has been taught under an old covenant and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Do you see it, the beauty of that? He's just saying, listen, 
I don't want to throw you under the bus here, but you know, people are going to come along and they're going to try to teach you philosophy. They're going to try to add to Jesus something that depends on you doing something else for your salvation. No, he says, it's all about Christ. It says, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, I love that, you have been brought to fullness. You're not coming into fullness. You have been brought to fullness in Christ. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised with the circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And then it says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. The old picture was a ram. The New Testament picture was a lamb. Friends, that's how he made you alive in Christ. It came through the lamb. What did he do? He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Remember the Apostle Paul opened these scriptures by saying, I'm struggling for you. And I know his struggle. I know his inner conflict. I know his pain, emotionally speaking, because we want people to see the loveliness of Christ. We want them to see the goodness of God. We want them to see this new covenant relationship that we have that depends on Christ, the Lamb, and not on philosophy for men. But we're up against that. And so that's our struggle, is to not get mad at people, be patient, like I said earlier, with them. And so he's got this struggle going on. And so just before he started talking about this struggle in verse 1 of chapter 2, he ended chapter 1 with a thought that spilled over into chapter 2. And this is what he said in my closing scriptures. Colossians chapter 1, verses 25 through 29. And he says, And I have been made a servant of the church by God, who gave me this task to perform for your good. It is the task of fully proclaiming his message, not mine, his message. Look at what he says, which is the secret he hid through all past ages from all human beings, but now has revealed to his people. God's plan is to make known his secret to his people. This rich and glorious secret, which he has for all peoples, and the secret, are you ready? And the secret is that Christ is in you. He's not walking up the backside of a mountain anymore. He's not hanging on a cross anymore. He's not buried in a tomb anymore. 
The secret is Christ is in you. I get excited when I think about that. That's the secret. I'm sorry, I'm yelling. I just get excited. That's the secret that they were all chasing their tail in the old covenant. There's got to be more to life. What's going on here? Well, Christ was concealed, but he's no longer concealed. He has been revealed. The secret is Christ in you. Which means that you will share in the glory of God so we preach Christ to everyone. Remember, everyone, you'd hit life. You'd, everyone, down that door. We preach Christ to everyone. And then he says, with all possible wisdom, we warn and teach them in order to bring each one into God's presence as a mature individual in union with Christ. To get this done, he says, I toil and struggle. Do you see why he was struggling? He said, this is what I'm struggling, is to get this message in people's heart that it's Christ in you. And he's not going anywhere. He's there to stay. That's the message. To get this done, I toil and struggle using the mighty strength which Christ supplies. There, friends, there's the secret right there. Christ is supplying your strength. It's not my strength, it's his strength. He says it right there. He said, using the mighty strength which Christ supplies and which is at work in me. It's Christ's strength in me. It's Christ's love working in me. Friends, the wonderful truths that reach out from this word today are these. Through the new covenant of grace, the mystery of God, namely Christ, has been revealed. We no longer have to ask the question, who done it? He is the one and the only Lamb of God. The Lamb that climbed Mount Calvary with a crown of thorn on his head and died a substitutionary death for every Isaac and for all humanity. Jesus is the one that the prophet Zechariah prophesied that they would pierce. Jesus is the one who drank from the cup of mourning and bitterness. He is the beloved darling of heaven, the Yahid of the Father, the one that stands at every man's door and offers life. Through the lens of grace, we are able to look back across the landscape of Daddy's goodness. Looking back, we see the Christ. Looking back, we see the cross. Looking back, we see the crucifixion. Looking back, we see the resurrection. Looking back, we hear the cry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Pointing his very listeners and his audience back to Psalm 22. We no longer have to guess how the narrative ends because Jesus Christ is our beginning and he is our end. He is the firstborn among many brethren. In Christ, we have the full riches of complete understanding. In Christ, we have the fullness of the deity. And in Christ, we have been brought to fullness. The secret has been released. It's Christ in us, the hope of glory. What is our cry? Thank you. Thank you for forgiving us 
all our sins. Thank you for canceling the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us to condemn us. Thank you. Thank you a million times over. Thank you that you have taken our sins and the written code and you have nailed both of them to Christ's cross. I have been crucified with Christ. Crucified where? On the cross. I'm talking about the very cross that held the mystery of God, namely Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Daddy, I just want to praise you. I just want to honor you and thank you today. I want to thank you, Father, that we've already seen the end. It's Christ on a cross. It's Christ in a grave. It's Christ resurrected in life and power and glory. And you said, you know what? I'm going to give you newness of life too because you were crucified with my son. I want to thank you, Father, that I'm not looking back to get mesmerized by images of the old covenant, but it does thrill me when I know it's my Christ they're talking about. I want to thank you, Father, that we have fallen in love with the author, the author of life, the author of this book, the author of God. So thank you, Daddy. Thank you so much. Thank you, Father, that nothing can change what Jesus' shed blood did for us. I want to thank you, Father, the scriptures say that we have the fullness of Christ. That means we lack nothing. We have nothing missing, nothing broken. We have the fullness of Christ. So thank you, Father. Thank you for all of your grace. Thank you, Father, for taking us back through the photo album so that we could see Christ from the very beginning when you said, in the beginning, God created man in our likeness and image. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your wonderful grace. In Jesus' name, amen.